1: Now, I live in an 80-20 split between what I call beauty and rage. So 80% of my time, I'm in the beautiful, the good relationships, the positive things I want to create, the wonderful things that are already going right, the things I'm grateful for, my compelling vision of my future, which I think will bring a lot of good to a lot of people. But then I spend 20% of the time in rage, in self-hatred, in being fundamentally disappointed with who I am today today. Uh, and what I've accomplished in knowing how much more I could do in focusing on the enemies who want to see me destroyed the people that actively want me to fail and in that and so I'll again I'll come back to from an evolutionary standpoint that anger that rage is nature's way of allowing you to be able to withstand a higher degree of pain and suffering
0: Guys, welcome back to the show. I'm here with the one and only Tom Billu, who's the co-founder of Quest Nutrition, and now we're here at the Impact Theory Studios. Yes. So thank you so much for coming well, thank on. Thank you for having me, man. It's an absolute pleasure to be here. So I've been seeing you everywhere online. I was just speaking with Alex, and you guys seem to be just all around the web. I don't know if it's an algorithm, you guys, <laughs> but it's amazing the amount of presence you guys have. And you guys just really picked this up in. January. Yeah. So, what's been that transition like, going from running a billion-dollar company into becoming more of a thought leader and needing to be in front of the media? What's been the biggest mindset
1: shift for you? Um, there actually hasn't been a mind a mindset shift. So mm. that, to me, there are universal principles to success. And they're going to apply no matter what you're doing. Now, the specific skill set, obviously, is going to become very different. So there's things that I'm focused on now that I wasn't before. And there's certainly things that I, I am no longer needing to focus on, like manufacturing and things like that, which uh, was a universe unto itself I and like it. uh, really took an inhuman amount of time and energy. But this, is, this has been a lot of fun. So, and I think part of what makes going into the social realm so interesting for me, I didn't grow up with it. So, you know, millennials and Gen Z for short, like they just take it for granted. Yeah. So for them, do you know the David Foster Wallace talk, this is water? I don't. Absolutely fascinating. You mm. must go listen to it right now. Drop it into YouTube. Yeah. Anybody listening to this, trust me, do yourself a favor and listen to it. David Foster Wallace, this is water. And he talks about how the fish is the last person to realize that it's in water. It's so ubiquitous. It's so ever present that you don't even see it. And that's what social media is, certainly to Gen Z, and and very much so for millennials as well, but not at all for my generation. So hmm. I didn't grow up even with the internet, uh, and then when it started coming, like I I didn't I wasn't even aware of it enough to ever say, oh, this is a fad or it's not a fad. Like it was happening right as I was going to film school, and I was so entrenched in that, and I was so busy hmm. with that that the the sort of Cambrian explosion, if you will, of the internet happened while I had my head down and I was just working. And so it wasn't until much later that I really started getting into it and and to really give myself context. Um, I didn't have my first computer until I was a junior in college. So it, yeah. So my first two years I had a word processor and, uh, yeah, it was, so it's totally different. So for me, I'm not, slipping into some of the negativity that people have about it Mm. just talking about that this morning on a series that my wife and i do called relationship theory uh where we you know just talk about all things relationships and normally we shoot it on a monday but i was off filming another person's podcast up in the bay area Mm. and while i was sad that i had to postpone relationship theory which has become actually important in my marriage let alone my business um, and because i was meeting these guys that i had met socially and They have an amazing podcast, and we clicked, and I was actually there to promote a company that I got involved with Mm -hmm. through the show, Impact Theory, uh, if you remember the VS Ramachandran episode. So it's, it's all this stuff coming together and knowing that I use my show to meet incredible people and then real relationships build from that. And and I was just thinking like man, we live in this era where you can connect with somebody across the globe, build a real relationship with them. They can then have impact on your business either by teaching you something or becoming a real like sort of biz dev relationship. It's unparalleled, man. It is unparalleled. It's, an it's world. so exciting. So yeah, I'm I, every passing day I get more passionate about social and about what we're doing at Impact Theory. And I didn't even know you went to film school. And it yeah. is. Would you say you're an introvert or an extrovert? <laughs> it it all comes down to how you define it. So I suppose the most honest answer is I'm ambiverted. Mm-hmm. So I can be extroverted if I need to. But by the traditional definition of extroversion, I'm introverted. So I recharge by myself. I like to be by myself. I almost never make social plans. I basically have to be drug out to do things and usually they have to be in service of my goals, so it's not even something that like I'm just going to go out and hang out with friends, which is is a fascinating thing. And I'm not sure that um, I wouldn't benefit from more time with just mm. friends. Um, but do you yeah, get, so, do you get exhausted though when you're at networking parties for yeah multiple. Not hours only do I get and- exhausted, I just want to leave. Mm. So I'm always trying to find like when I can connect one on one and really. This is interesting. You're, you're making me think about this in real time. So either connect one-on-one or be there with fans of Impact Theory, I will answer questions for, I've done it for up to eight hours where I just stand in a group and I just answer their question, question mm. after question about building a business, about relationships, about mindset, about how to succeed in life, whatever that looks like, being a linchpin. So that for me is the one time where I'm like, I love this so much that I could keep going and going and going. So even though that will never happen by accident like i have to plan it out and know that i'm gonna do it when i'm doing it i'm like this is so unintroverted of me to like really be into this yeah like surprised yourself interesting because
0: your biggest asset now is really being able to find great ideas being able to filter it so that introversion is certainly necessary where do you get your best ideas is it when you're by yourself is it when you're with your wife is it when you're
1: well, this is, this is a very um, process-driven thing for me, and I think it's very process-driven for everybody. I just don't think most people do the process. So mine goes something like this. Uh, I go to bed very early, so I'm in bed by 9 p.m., like it's a religion, and I yeah. do that because I want to wake up early. And in waking up early, now you get this time where the world is just silent. It's still. Mm. And because I usually only sleep five to six hours a night, if I go to bed at 9, there's times I'm up at 2 a.m., but my day has started. Mm. And... That period is just incredibly rich for me. So the first thing I do is I work out, but then I immediately meditate after I work out. The meditation gives me the space to actually hear those little whispers of intuition, Mm. um, which are incredibly powerful. But because intuition whispers, it never shouts. You really have to create that quiet space to hear it. And then I do something I call thinkitating, which is, so when you meditate, you get in an alpha wave state. And one of the reasons it's so powerful is the alpha wave state is uh, denoted as the one that is calm and creative. So you're in this relaxed state where your mind isn't racing, you're not feeling anxiety, and you're making these cross connections between different regions of your brain. It's very powerful for creative thinking. The problem I found was the whole point of meditation is to quiet your mind. So here I am. I'm having these amazing ideas, and I want to be distracted, but I'm telling my mind, you know, just breathe, just breathe, just breathe, and trying to really focus on the part of the breast cycle that I'm in, and I began to resent it. Mm -hmm. And I was like, I'm having my best ideas while I'm meditating, and I'm sitting here trying to crush them down, and now I'm afraid I'm going to forget, and that's sort of breaking the whole point of meditating. So I thought, well, what if instead I meditate first, I really do calm my mind. I only think about my breath. But then I immediately follow it with thinkitating, where I'm going to leverage the buzz of that alpha wave state, and I'm going to set my mind to the biggest problem that I have for 20 or 30 minutes Mm. and just let my mind wander on it. So whereas in meditating, I'm specifically trying not to think, During thinkitating, while I'm maintaining the breathing cycle of meditation, I'm specifically trying to let my mind wander across a problem. I don't try to force it on anything, but I'll set it loose on a problem. Sometimes it wanders far away from that. Other times it really goes right to work on that problem. And I find that I have way more creative insights into it. That has been massively, massively useful for me in terms of creativity, coming up with new ideas. Um, And then the other part of the process is this math equation that I'm obsessed with, which is ideas in equal ideas out. So I am not at all worried about thinking unique thoughts. Mm. I'm fully willing to admit that there are no unique thoughts left in the world. I don't, that doesn't bother me at all because there's still massive room for creativity between the thoughts connecting unique ideas. And that's where I think the real juice is, And that's where I think any individual gets to bring their unique mind to the table and read a book, listen to a podcast, whatever the case may be, take that piece of information and let it react in your mind. And then what does it make you think of? um, What are the parts of it that you want to adopt in your life? What are the parts you want to discard? What are the parts that marry with other ideas that you have in your head? And, you know, what are the offspring of those ideas meeting? And so that process has been very, very fruitful for me as well. And I find that Oftentimes during thinkating, I'm actually pulling in the ideas that I've been reading. Mm-hmm. So I read voraciously. And when people ask me, like, what's the key to my success? Always be reading. And do you speed read? I speed listen. Ah. So I'm a very slow reader, but I can do audible books at 3x and retain the information. And that is really, really, really powerful for me. I think there is a fixed concept about this whole idea of meditating, that we have to be
0: sitting down and we have to practice a certain concept. But for some people, running could be their form of meditation. Working out could be their form Mm -hmm. of meditation. And to me, you seem like, and I follow your Instagram stories, you're always working out at 4 a.m. You're super motivated. That's something about you that is super clear that I think stands out amongst, and I know a lot of motivated people, but... There's something about you, your energy, even when I'm sitting across from you. There is this, you have this drive, this tinkling in your eye that's still there, I feel. And generally, the people that have these big inspirations or motivations, they generally come from the worst place, right? Whether it's poverty, whether it's, uh, you know, tragic death. You know, for me, I'm an immigrant, mm-hmm. so I came here when I was seven, and, you know, my parents had to fight for everything. And for me, this is everything that I do is for me to give back to what they've given me.
1: I'm curious to know what that is for you. So I think in movies, and by the way, thank you for the Matrix code uh, behind us, which is for sure the most impactful movie on my life. But let's talk about Star Wars for a second. And they do a really good job of showing both the light side and the dark side. And I think people need both. And I think that their evolutionary... mechanisms that are there the light side makes you feel connected it makes you um, want to help it makes you really want to contribute to the tribe and i think it's pretty obvious why that would be advantageous for such a social creature to want to do good things for people to want to see them win to think about the beautiful things that you want to create in your life Um, that's that i think makes sense to people but what i think people miss is the power of the dark side now i live in an 80 20 split between what I call beauty and rage. So 80% of my time I'm in the beautiful, the good relationships, the positive things I want to create, the wonderful things that are already going right, the things I'm grateful for, my compelling vision of my future, which I think will bring a lot of good to a lot of people. But then I spend 20% of the time in rage, in self-hatred, in being fundamentally disappointed with who I am today uh, and what I've accomplished in knowing how much more I could do in focusing on the enemies who want to see me destroyed, the people that actively want me to fail. And in that, and so I'll, again, I'll come back to from an evolutionary standpoint That anger, that rage is nature's way of allowing you to be able to withstand a higher degree of pain and suffering. So if you take somebody, they've done controlled studies of this. Absolutely fascinating. So if you take somebody and you want to see how much pain they can tolerate, what they do is they make you submerge your arm in ice, ice bucket. So it's it's actually worse, like ice water. So you've got your arm in there. And at first, everybody's fine. You don't have to do anything. But then after like three, six, ten minutes, it's brutal. And it really begins to be this mental torture where it's like, how long can I endure this? Because they know I can pull my arm out at any time. So how do I manage to keep going through this? And what they found is if they told people, right when you feel like you have to pull it out, I want you to get angry and start swearing. And when they do that, they can stay for 30% longer by triggering an anger response, by being aggressive, by really like enraging themselves so you can imagine if you encounter an animal a warring tribe like whatever and you need to show up at that moment it isn't thinking the beautiful thoughts it's fucking bloodthirst man it is like i am not going to lose i'm gonna rage into this person i'm gonna go with everything i have and in that that adrenaline that aggression that like anger and rage you're able to deal with what you're actually in the middle of, which is going to be high degree of pain, which obviously is going to be suffering. So it is a tool that we've been given that lets us really push. Now, it's when people lose the balance and they spend north of, in my opinion, north of 20% in that it begins to be corrosive. So if you're spending north of 20% of your time focused on the people who hate you, focused on how disappointed you are with your own results, focused on um, you know, how hard things are, if you spend more than 20% of your time there, it begins to diminish you. Mm. And that's where people just have to realize it's a choice. Right? You get what you focus on. So if you focus on the bad things, they're going to be there, and they will seem ever-present. But likewise, if you focus on the good things, they will be there, and they will seem ever-present. So you get to decide how what percentage of your time. You could spend no time in the darkness, and there are people that do that, right? You could spend all of your time in the darkness, and unfortunately, there are people who do that. But I think at the end of the day, it's really about understanding what the power each one of those has, knowing when to use them, and knowing what the appropriate balance is to really be centered, to really still feel the joy in your life. And I think that most of the time, you're better off focusing on the beauty and spending your time there on something that's uplifting and encouraging and motivating and inspiring. But 20% of the time, I promise, that will fail you. How do you trigger that? What are the things you think about? What are the
0: specific processes that you go through? Because I think it's a hard mindset shift when either on opposite ends, right? Whether you're feeling miserable, it's hard for most people to trigger happiness from a snap of a finger. And it's also, I think, natural for us not not to want to go to that darkness if they don't see it as a tool. But I'm curious to know how you get into that state.
1: Here's something that's really, really fascinating, and it's called a negative feedback loop. So you have positive feedback loops, like labor. Labor is a positive feedback loop. So once a woman goes into labor, as one chemical raises, the next chemical raises, and that chemical B raising triggers chemical A to raise higher. Chemical A raising higher triggers chemical B, and that's why once labor starts, you can't stop it. So mm. once a, it's not like they ever go, you know what, Now let's hold this off for a couple of days. It doesn't happen. Like It's a one-way train. Negative feedback loops. There's mechanisms to to stop them. So you have um, an. Uh, basic, I can never remember the. You have an antagonist and a, whatever the other one is. It's not, pro, it's not protagonist. Oh, okay. That's in like a story, but it's um, and it's not antagonist either anyway the two things that work together so as one goes up the other one necessarily goes down so take the sympathetic nervous system which is fight or flight and the parasympathetic nervous system which is rest and digest so fight or flight you know we're about to get into something boom your cortisol levels spike your heart rate goes up you start breathing more rapidly your muscles are mobilized they are ready to run or engage Conversely, when you meditate, you 're slowing your breathing, you're slowing your heart rate, you're lowering your cortisol levels, so you can't do both at the same time. Mm. so as you this is why meditation is so effective, as you raise your sympathetic nervous system, sorry, your parasympathetic nervous system, your heart rate's coming down, your breathing's going more shallow, the sympathetic nervous system, the fight or flight is coming down, and that's why you feel this like sense of well-being as you begin to meditate so that's your, your negative now. The body has mechanisms worked into it to allow you to trigger these things. Mm. So, for instance, if you want to immediately get into a happy place, start it from the body. If you're not feeling it, start it from the body. They've done studies on this absolutely incredible. If you have somebody rate their level of happiness, they'll rate it one way. If you have somebody rate their level of happiness holding a pencil in their teeth, which sort of forces their face into a smile they'll rate their levels of happiness higher just from holding the pencil consistently. Now, the reason is is something called mirror neurons. If you know V.S. Ramachandran, who's actually been a guest on Impact Theory, an amazing human being and one of the most extraordinary neuroscientists ever this guy's just unbelievable but he's done a lot of work into mirror neurons now mirror neurons if you've ever heard about mirroring and matching which is something in nlp where it's like when you're talking to somebody you and i'll both start nodding at the same time right to connect with each other if i fold my arms you're likely to fold yours uh you lean in i'll lean in so all the that's mirror neurons at work now mirror neurons are what allow especially like kids to see something and learn how to do it but it lets anyone match the facial features that the other person is doing to actually Feel what they're going through. So if you put a camera on the audience while they watch a movie, you can actually see them. They're like mimicking the facial expressions of the people on screen, which is one of the reasons you really feel connected. You empathize with them because we have this mechanism where when we hold our face in a certain way, it actually makes us feel a certain way. So the next time you're in a piss poor mood and you really want to cheer yourself up, force yourself, you're going to feel stupid, but force yourself to laugh out loud you can't stay angry you can't it's it's that what i'll call antagonist and antagonist it's not called that i know that i just can't we'll remember the word it we'll look it up yeah. so it's that balance between those two things right when you start laughing out loud it it forces the change in neurochemistry that's going to dissipate whatever you were feeling what was making you angry anxious whatever like that will go down So conversely, if I really wanted to trigger the rage, the anger, not only am I going to force myself to think about something that enrages me, but I'm also going to furrow my brow. I'm going to take a more aggressive stance. I'm actually going to flex my muscles. Like, doing things like that make you feel – like, literally just doing that now, lowering my forehead, bringing my brow down, flexing my muscles, gritting my jaw. (laughs) Like, it makes me feel aggressive, right? Mm. So you can – very rapidly once you understand how the body and mind work together and how they are inextricably linked and how yeah. doing something to the body will immediately impact the mind, which is why I begin my days with working out, even though I hate working out. Um, once you begin to understand that reciprocal relationship, you can do extraordinary things.
0: I think most people know about being able to increase your energy if you're moving around, or if you're doing yoga, or if you're working out. But I guess really what you're doing is applying that concept to make yourself feel better or make yourself feel angry as a tool so that's really interesting that you bring that up. I'm curious to know why you started Impact Theory. You know, and, and do you think you would have
1: started it if you didn't have such financial success with Quest Nutrition? Well, uh, so we have a lot of deep and amazing questions in there. So I'll break them apart. So why did I found Impact Theory? Because I believe my truest mission in the world is to address two pandemics. Uh, you have the pandemic of the body And everybody understands that. Everybody can see that that's ratcheting up and becoming a bigger and bigger problem. Um, And it's very visible, right? When somebody's dying of um, diet-related complications, they're usually massively obese. Uh, If they have like diabetes or something like that, they're literally burning alive from the inside. And so they're being amputated, starting at the toes and then the feet and then the legs. And so you see it happening. But the other pandemic that we're facing is the pandemic of the mind. And depression and anxiety are a lot harder to see until somebody takes very drastic action. Right now, suicide is the number one cause of death among young men in Australia. It's the number two leading cause of death among young men in the US. Um, Just globally is becoming a bigger and bigger problem. So with Quest, it was asking and answering the question, no bullshit, what would it take to end metabolic disease? And the answer that we came up with was you would have to make food that people chose based on taste, and it happened to be good for them because telling some people eat less and exercise more works, but telling that to everybody is not a winning solution. So that was our, like, we really believe that will work. Mm-hmm. And so we set out to do that in earnest. Then on the mind side, it was, okay, what is that Thing that allows people to really take control of their life whether it's the neurochemistry that's making them depressed or anxious or whatever what's going to allow them to do it so no bullshit what would it take to get people out of the matrix which is how I asked the question and the answer was you have to fundamentally alter their belief system because you get what you focus on, because humans lead with belief, if you're focusing on negative things, your life will simply seem negative. If you don't believe that you can get out of your bad circumstances, then you'll never take the first step. So it really does come down to their mindset. It comes down to how they view the world. Um, in fact, there's, I'm, I'm writing a book right now about how to escape the matrix. It'll be called something else almost certainly, but uh, that's the underlying principle. And the quote that I want to open with is a quote from Einstein. And this, when people understand how foundational this is, then they'll really be onto something. And his quote is, the most important decision anyone will ever make is whether they live in a hostile or friendly universe. So it's a decision. It's something you decide. And you decide whether you live in a friendly or hostile universe, and then that decision will become a self-fulfilling prophecy. You'll see it everywhere because you're focused on either all the things that go right or all the things that go wrong. Neither one is objectively true, but that's what you focus on, and so that's what you're going to get. So knowing all of this um, and having read Joseph Campbell's seminal work, The Power of Myth, and understanding that we're now living through an era where we have all this amazing mythology, but nobody believes it. And so nobody's trying to extract life lessons and looking at the neuroscience, it's just abundantly clear. The only way that human beings assimilate truly disruptive information. So changing a mindset is through narrative and the way that we, unlike any other animal have been able to group in these massive groups and work in a coordinated fashion is because of the, the fictions and the narratives that we rally around. So if you haven't read the book, um, in fact, read them both because they both touch on this subject, but, um, Sapiens by Noah Yuval Harari and uh, Homo Deus, also by uh, Noah Yuval Harari. Just two books that really talk about humans and how they use narrative, how they um, leverage fiction. So think, you know, you and I meet, and let's say that we both believe in, like, we're just huge comic book fans or the Matrix fans, right? And instantly we have a connection. Oh, we have, but it's fake. It's just a story, but we can actually really bond over it. And so. When I saw that movie, I decided to take the principles into my own life and to actually live by them. Even though I know it's a work of fiction, the easiest way to think about it these the narratives that people have galvanized around for millennia has been religion, and that was the way like you could unite very disparate people in far flung lands that had never met each other, get them to fight wars all over what they believed in in terms of God, right, and rituals and what's right and what's wrong. pretty crazy when you Mm. think about it. So I knew, okay, what are the dominant forms of narrative? If I'm going to change somebody's mindset, I'm going to be leveraging narrative. I'm doing it though in a world where people no longer believe in the narrative. So somebody watches the matrix and they don't think it's actually true. Um, they think it's a good story. So how do we leverage that to get them to actually use that? And I think that's where social media comes in. So we're in this incredibly unique time, which is one of the reasons that I founded the studio, uh, because I think we can leverage social media to really commentate, commentate on the traditional narrative, but I think we need the traditional narrative to give people the ideology that they can assimilate into their belief system. So David Foster Wallace's this is water. As people believe or As people build their belief system, it's invisible to them because they don't even realize that it's a belief system. They don't realize that it's a choice. They get some from their family. They get some from the culture at large. And because they have no idea that they were constructing that usually happens so early in your life, you don't realize that you can deconstruct it and build something new. So what we want to do is create a traditional narrative studio that will beat Disney at their own game. Um, by telling one kind of story. And those stories will all be about empowerment. And the goal being to show people all the different beliefs that they should have that will give them the mindset that they need to understand they can acquire skills in anything, at any time, and become capable truly of the extraordinary. And once enough people believe that, I believe you can get a cultural critical mass that can help us out of this pandemic of the mind. I'm curious to know
0: though, why did you personally start impact theory is it and it could be personal it could be a specific event or experience maybe
1: you've had Um, well so there's unfortunately life almost never works like that right so i can give you the sort of steps that led up to why i want to pull people out of the matrix Mm -hmm. so the studio is the honest answer to what does it take to change people's belief system uh, my goal is to pull people out of the matrix. The only way to do that is to change their belief system. That led me back to a studio, right? Mm. So that's why I'm doing it. Uh, if what you want is sort of the emotional journey of what made me want to pull people out of the matrix, um, I can I can certainly give you that. So uh, it started with I big brothered for this. It wasn't officially a big brother program. It was run by USC. And to get extra credit, they send you because USC is in the ghetto. Okay, mm. It's very important to realize uh, it's in the ghetto, so you walk a block off campus, and you're an inner-city Los Angeles Unified School District. So they send you out there to basically help with the neighborhood schools. And so they gave me this kid. His name was Rashan, and it was ended up being a transformative experience i'll give you the short version otherwise it takes far too long (laughs) but um he uh, just a total emotional basket case all over the place drug and alcohol impacted at birth i mean just just really really having a hard time and the school wants him out of class right because he's so disruptive so they plan to just shuttle him off to these kids in the um, that are coming for extra credit and it's an a eight-week program. So you come at week six. You're supposed to tell them, hey, I'm only coming for two more weeks. So at week six, I tell him I'm only coming for two more weeks. And he has a meltdown. And finally, I realize he's freaking out because I'm only coming for two more weeks. And so largely to calm him down, if I'm honest, uh, I made him a huge promise. Mm-hmm. And that promise was, look, if you'll do your homework when I'm here, as long as I live in Los Angeles... I will help you with your homework. Fair. And so he calmed down, and that ended up being uh, an eight or eight and a half year relationship between he and I that became, I got very involved in his life, and he ultimately got taken out of the adoptive home that he was in because he was being abused, which unfortunately I didn't recognize, and he made me the guardian of the court to help him through the court system and ultimately into foster care. So I mean, that's how involved I ended up getting in his life. And trying to take him, and I was young and broke and didn't have my own mindset where it is now, so I'm somewhat heartbroken that I was able to help him really quite little um, other than to show him that somebody cared. And... That really left a lasting impression on me about how frame of reference is everything. Mm -hmm. And so I used to try to take him to see movies in Beverly Hills just so he could see something beautiful. So he could see a part of life that he wasn't used to because he lived in Compton. And so I wanted him to see that beautiful stuff. And so that's seed number one. Then, flash forward years later, I'm developing my own mindset and all that. And so I stayed with him, by the way, just to wrap that up, I stayed with him until the foster system moved him like two hours away. It was out into the desert and and it was just, I was broke and working and and didn't um, have time to go out and see him. So we lost contact. But then, you know, flash forward years later, We found Quest Nutrition. We're now manufacturing in Compton, which means you're hiring local people. um, And they are all people that grew up hard in the inner cities, have a very distressing frame of reference. They have a very limited view of what's possible, or I should say limited belief in what's possible. And it just, again, shows me smack in my face. I'm not smarter than these guys. But I have a different belief system. And because of that different belief system, I own the company and they work for it. So I really, really became obsessed with trying to help them because I could see so much potential, but it wasn't being used because they didn't believe that it it could. They didn't believe they had dormant potential that could be manifest into a real set of skills that could allow them to do anything they wanted. They just didn't believe it. And my job was to show them that it was possible. And in showing them that it was possible, then some of them really started to do incredible stuff. And it was amazing. And I just realized for whatever reason, I am wired to love that moment where somebody is like, oh my God, I can do more with my life than I realized. That to me is so beautiful and so profound. And I've told the team this. I don't have the energy and the will to build a studio for the sake of making good movies. I just don't. It's very interesting to me. I love filmmaking, love comic books, love books, love TV shows, love them, but not enough. Not enough to risk my fortune, not enough to um, show up every day and play as hard as I'm playing, not enough to get up at 2 a.m. and like really go after, just not enough. And, So it comes down, the thing that drives me is that. It's those people that I know that they're incredible and they could do something amazing with their life if they just had a more empowering mindset. And mindset is something I think you can give to anyone. Not everyone will take it, I'm well aware of that. But to make it an option that they're choosing from. If they choose to ignore it, that's on them. I'm not gonna waste my time with that. But for the people that respond, seeing what they're gonna do with their life and knowing that I helped with that, like... That's the juice for me. It's
0: everything. I mean, I've never shared this on camera, but my aunt committed suicide about 12 years ago. And for her living in Korea, a simple mindset shift, whether it's a narrative, whether it's a story that she can relate with, because of the distribution that we have, could have saved her life. And I know right now what you're doing now is you're scaling that to the global audience and that person that can resonate with you I mean, maybe you won't hear every single story, but you know that's what's happening, mm. right? And you're able to really bring that to light. So I think it's amazing that you're doing. The mindset is so powerful, and I think the people that you talk to in about in class nutrition or the people or the person that you big brothered
1: mm.
0: it seems like a lot of them are in a scarcity mindset. Definitely. So, what are some of the things that people can do now to escape the matrix and to get into that growth mindset? Is it Mentor is it? You know, what are some of the practices that you think they should take?
1: Yeah, so I think there are a few things, and I tried to put together one of them is read, and I tried to put together what I think is the ultimate book list to give somebody an empowering growth mindset. Um, you can find them on impacttheory.com. It's twenty-five books in order that mm. I think that they should be read, starting with Carol Dweck's seminal work, Mindset, uh, which is just the absolute place to start. So going through those books, if you read those 25 books with a truly open mind, wanting to be changed, a willingness to act immediately on the things that you learn, by the end of the 25 books, you will be a fundamentally different and far more empowered human being, just period. Mm. Um, The other thing is you live in an amazing age. You have access to some of the world's greatest thinkers who are pumping out content on a daily basis. I mean, it's crazy. And this is another reason I'm so amped up on social is... I can't imagine where I would be now if I had access to this kind of content when I was 15. Like, forget it. I'd be so much farther ahead. I felt like I had to learn everything the hard way. Uh, The only mentors that I really had in my life were books. So, and those are powerful, don't get me wrong. Like, books are incredibly powerful mentors. But when they're your only mentors, that sucks. And so now you can become a part of a community. You can, uh, and that's you know something that I think about a lot is building community and being of service to them. So for instance, we're about to cross over 100,000 um, likes on Facebook. So for that, thank you. Yeah. Uh, for that, we're, I'm gonna be for 24 hours, I'm gonna be on camera answering questions like for 24 live? hours live. Because I want people to know that I wanna be of service. So the only way that I can think to, to really thank them is to, to be of service nonstop, 24 hours, so they know, I'm, A, I'm willing to suffer for them, to bring value to them, And that just seems like the right way to thank them for me, to make sure that every single one of those questions gets answered. And in fact, I'll just say it here for the first time. Like, I'll stay up longer if I have to. If there are questions to be answered and they're sincere, if somebody's trying to troll me, I'll ignore them and go right to bed. But if you have a sincere question, then I will answer it, even if I have to stay up longer. It's amazing.
0: I think the scalability of being able to find a mentor is... So powerful with the content and the, and the YouTube and, and the amount of books that are out today. Do you think that having a personal mentor, a real life mentor, you can go to the house and drink coffee. Do you think that's still relevant and as
1: important as it was maybe 20 years ago? It's definitely still relevant. I don't think it's as important because back in the day, that was sort of it. Like that was your only way. You couldn't sit and learn from somebody by watching their videos or by reading their blog articles or their books. Um, The books, I guess, is one thing you could do, but all the other stuff didn't exist. So just the volume of content and the intimacy, quite frankly, that you can create with a podcast or a video didn't exist before. So you really do feel like you get to know them. Also, most influencers, at least if they're smart, they'll actually answer your specific question.
0: You talked about um, your interns being fearful of or excited about certain things. You've achieved so much at this point. You know, you've built a billion dollar company. You now are interviewing some of the greatest minds of the world. What are some of the things
1: that scare you today? And how do you deal with that? So here's the, the bad news about my mind. There's not a lot of things that scare me because I'm not risk averse. So, and that's probably what I should be scared about is that I really see opportunity. I really move towards things. Um, the, the honest answer, what scares me to death is getting brain damage and my wife dying. Those are like paralyzing fears for me. So you're not going to see me do dumb shit that like could give me, um, head trauma. You won't see me on a motorcycle. Uh, you're not going to see me speeding down the highway like, dude, I re- that really, truly scares me um, because if I lost all my money, you can't take my skill set, okay? So I can build back. So that doesn't scare me. It doesn't sound like fun. I have absolutely no interest in it, but it doesn't scare me. So I'm willing to take risks with money, and if we lose it, we lose it, whatever, and we'll just build back up. So that doesn't have its grips on me. Um, my wife, what we have is shared experience. And so there's no, like, it's the only thing you have to earn again in real time. So to be where we are, 17 years of ups and downs and starting broke and building this empire together and like the becoming wealthy with your best friend, like from your efforts and energies and having built something is Unbelievable, and to share a vision for how you can impact the world on a global stage, and then to set about executing it, knowing that you have to get better and you're not the people you need to be yet, and you're gonna work with each other to encourage each other to like really grow. Like, and then just all the times where they went through heartbreak and you were there for them, or I, The time that I locked myself in between two doors when we got in this huge argument, my wife had to come let me out, and then we both pissed our pants laughing because, you know, how dumb it was that I got locked. Like, you have all these little memories that make up this beautiful shared experience, and the thought of losing that is terrifying. And so I don't believe that there's one person for somebody, but I believe every day you spend with the person that you're committed to is, it's making that relationship richer and richer and richer. And there are exactly zero shortcuts to that. So those two things scare me.
0: I know you didn't do relationship theory, so we're going to deep into relationships a little bit. Let's do it. You've been with your wife for 17 years now and you started at nothing. So to, to be able to go through that journey together, where both of your minds have shifted, you've gone through some of the shittiest times and you've risen to the top. And obviously, there's still problems and conflicts that you guys will face that maybe aren't on camera, and I'm sure. What's been like the evolution of that relationship? And I know today people put this pedestal on power couples and being, you know, perfect on camera when you're when you're together. What's been that evolution like and how has your
1: relationship evolved from starting from nothing to where you guys are here today? It's been amazing, man. And look, my wife and I, the one thing we don't do is try to be cool. So we uh, we're pretty raw and vulnerable in the show and walk people through like all the dumb stuff that we did to have to learn lessons. Um, one thing that I'll say in the beginning is my wife would get upset too fast and I would get upset too slow only to then stay pissed for a really long time. So like managing that, like how do you deal with when the other person actually hurts your feelings and you have legitimate reason to be upset, how do you navigate that? That was something we got very good at very early on that has served us so insanely well. Learning to communicate in a language that the other person can understand. So it's not enough to say the right thing. You have to say it in a way that they will actually be able to understand. Um, defining terms has been huge for us. So like what does the word important mean? What, if you say you promise, like what does that mean? So things like that have been just insanely, insanely important for us. We started as I was the one working and she was the housewife and went from that to being equal partners in a business. We First, we um, founded Quest together. We had other partners, but we founded Quest together. And then this, we founded just the two of us. So it's really been fascinating over the last 10 years to become business partners and to see what that's like um, and, and our relationship evolving over that. And one thing that was really an evolution was she went from being a housewife, totally a supportive role. She was laying my clothes out for me every night. She was making all of my food, keeping my calendar. I mean, it was amazing the degree to which she took care of me. And then she started working at Quest and was so involved and building out her own department and having to really toughen up, and become business savvy and all that in that process, no longer doing all that stuff for me. I had to do my own clothes and make my own food. You know, oh, what well, was me? Right. But it was a shift for us. It was totally different. Sure. And so watching her become a truly strong and empowered woman was not easy for me. And so I had to go from the selfish place of this woman takes care of me all the time. And it's amazing To, and now she's doing her own thing, and I have to sacrifice and give up that part of the relationship, which I really liked. And I remember thinking how disgusting it was to think, even for a second. I want this attention back on myself because this is her becoming who she wants to become. She's literally blossoming as a human being. She's becoming more powerful. She's enjoying her life more. She's pursuing the exact path that she wants to pursue. And in finding that empowerment and becoming just a better version of herself, to not be excited for her is it violates my code. So... My code demands, this is someone I love. I want to see them become the best version of themselves. And if I, if that in some way is threatening to me or makes me feel like less the center of the universe, then I need to get over that fucking immediately. And so... That was one of the most amazing processes that we went through together as a couple. And she was so graceful to me to give me the space that I needed to get my head around. Okay, I now have a working wife who's a very potent and powerful businesswoman who is every bit my equal in the world of business. And what does that look like? And so that was uh, just, just an incredible, incredible bit of evolution that really forced us to be honest about where we were about who we wanted to become, about finding out whether the code that we were each living by was going to serve us, and it did, um, and just talking, 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 mm. talking. And one thing that I'm very proud of, uh, I'm not somebody who avoids being petty and insecure. I'm just somebody who acknowledges when I'm being petty and insecure. So I could tell her, hey, I'm being petty right now, and it really bothers me that like I have to make my own lunch, and that's really petty, and I totally get it. But that's a real emotion that I'm going through. And so give me the space to process that because I really do, I understand you can't. Like you've got to go now learn the department that you're learning and get great at that. And it's going to take a lot of time and energy. And I actually am excited for you. And I just have to take a second to essentially mourn the loss of the really cool side of the equation before where I just had so many of my needs taken care of.
0: Was it for you, was it more about when you know when your wife went from housewife to being able to you know essentially be an equal in the business right you guys were you went from you know having all of your needs taken care of into perhaps she was giving you some ideas where maybe you didn't agree with and that's kind of like a sensitive spot especially when you have to go home together yeah i'm curious to know for you when that transition started happening was it more about protecting This is natural. I think everybody would have that. Is it more about protecting your ego? Was it afraid of losing her?
1: No, the priority for me was to make sure that she had the space to blossom into the person that she wants to be. Whatever skill set she wants to acquire, whatever she wants to get great at, if that's business, awesome. So... My emotions were tied to my wants, my needs. So now having to take care of my lunch, my day got harder, right? So my workload didn't lessen, but now I had less help. So now it's like I just have more to do. So it was better for me if she had stayed in that role because think about it. I could have hired somebody to do her job. So it's like, I could have hired somebody to do her job and then I would have had all my things taken care of, but she wanted to express herself that way. She wanted to come into her own and feel more powerful and learn a skill set and apply that skill set. And then in watching her do that, actually realized that she was unbelievably talented at it. And so that was incredible to see that she was acquiring the knowledge and the skills so fast and working so hard that I was like, I don't know that I actually would have an easy time replacing her. which was really cool. But that came much later in in that journey. So I didn't even have that to rely on as I'm going through this. But it was just recognizing that The thing that's upsetting me is something very petty. It's very selfish. And so it's okay to have those emotions. It's not okay to act on them. So I need to encourage her. And so I was honest. I said, look, this is how I'm feeling. But I want you to know you can count on my support. And I'm going to be there at every single turn to encourage you. I am not going to do little things to sabotage you. I'm not going to be passive aggressive. Like I am going to be very upfront about what I'm feeling. And I'm also going to make sure that I'm flawless in my execution of encouraging you to become who you want to become. So that's really critical and that just comes down to what are your values, mm. right? And those are my values. My value is that each and every single human being should be given the opportunity to become who they want to become, to grow in whatever direction they want to grow in. And things that stop them from doing that to me are the things that, you know, you have to get rid of. So, and do you think that's how you kill the ego? And shout out to Ryan
0: Holiday for ego is the enemy. Is that Is is understanding your values, is that the main thing that people need to do to diminish the egos that they have, whether it's
1: in business, relationships, friendships? Well, I'll give you a a counterpunch to that. So... um Mad shout-out to Ryan Holiday. He actually acknowledged me in the acknowledgments of Ego is the Enemy for for proofreading his book, which is an incredible book. And I really, really like the concept. But I'll just put slightly different words on it. I think everybody needs an ego. Mm. But I think it really matters what you build your ego around. And I think you can very rapidly get yourself in trouble. By building your ego around something that's fragile. So I'll give you an example. If you build your ego around being right and having the right answer, you're gonna gonna seem like what people think when they say, oh, he has an ego. But if instead you build your ego around being a learner, always being willing to admit when you're wrong, and identifying the right answer faster than anyone else, and then putting energy behind that idea, no one's gonna say, oh, he's egotistical. In fact, what they're gonna say is he's humble. So Even though you may be a raging ego, like I'm a raging egomaniac, but my ego, my self-esteem is all predicated on my willingness to stare nakedly at my flaws, to admit my inadequacies, to always being willing to put the work in to get better, to sit at people's feet and learn from them to acknowledge them as my master um, to when somebody has a great idea to acknowledge it that it's not only a great idea that it's their great idea and I just want to help whatever I can to make sure that it comes to fruition people want to be around somebody like that it makes them feel better about themselves it's somebody helping to get this idea across the finish line so Even though that is very much ego-driven, I want to feel good about myself. I'm doing things specifically to make me feel good about myself, right? I'm admitting that I'm wrong because I get a neurochemical rush, not a feeling bad about being wrong because I don't prize myself for being right. I get a neurochemical rush when I admit that I'm wrong really fast because I know that's hard and I know that I have to overcome like insecurity and pettiness. And in overcoming those things, I actually feel really good about myself. Mm. And I fan those flames, right? I create that value system in my mind. They're all decisions. And I fan and those flames and when i do it well, there might be a pit in my stomach oh god everyone's going to realize i don't have all the answers but then it's like don't worry about that feel good about the fact that you were willing to admit when you're wrong because that's very beneficial for moving you towards your goals and i personally do and believe that which moves me towards my goals so anytime that i act in accordance with that i reward myself literally just by like attaboys right like well done man like you you really like had that sting of, God, people are gonna think I'm stupid, but I'm gonna do it anyway because I know it's the right thing to do and it's the right thing to move the company forward. And yes, I had to admit that my idea was bad even though I was just fighting for it like 30 seconds ago, but like I changed direction immediately. And I didn't waste time arguing for my idea once I realized it was a bad idea and not as good as the other. Or maybe it's a great idea, but it's not as good as the other idea. And I can willingly set that aside. Like, I'm proud of myself for that. And literally, those are the words that I'm saying inside my head. And because of that, like, yeah, yeah, you know, you start to feel good. So it is ego. It is pride. But I don't think those things are inherently problematic. Hmm. It's all about what are they based on. It seems like your entire journey and a lot of people's journey is really just
0: about learning, making mistakes, experimenting, learning, and you're just constantly, constantly, constantly learning. I know you believe that entrepreneurs are not born, but they're made. I'm curious to know, and this is a final question, if you had 90 minutes to teach a university or set up a curriculum and teach a specific topic or a course, what topic would
1: that be and why would, that, why would you choose that topic? Mindset, because it is the thing that controls every other aspect of your life. Every single, every single aspect of your life is controlled by your mindset. Literally. And how would that be different
0: from, you know, psychology or a, uh, a curriculum that's already
1: That is in an place? awesome question. I'm glad you asked. So psychology concerns itself with truth. I have no interest in truth. I am Mm. only interested in what is effective. That's it. So when I say do and believe that which moves you towards your goals, I don't say do and believe that which is true. Do and believe that which moves you towards your goals. Why? Because I don't trust people to accurately assess what is true. You know how many beautiful people think they're ugly? You know how many brilliant people think they're dumb? You know how many insanely capable people are absolutely convinced that they can't do something? Right? When I think about your aunt, thank you, by the way, for being vulnerable and sharing that. She believed she would never feel good about herself again. And that's why she did what she did. It's not true, though right? It's a brain chemistry state. And I'm not denying that there's brain wiring that goes into it, that she's reinforced certain loops unintentionally in her mind that get her into a dark place and that there's real true, um, mental injury. I'll avoid saying mental illness just because it has baggage, but there's a mental injury. She's got wiring that isn't helping her. It's causing her from just a true, and she may have had a microbiome problem Uh, It's like, what, over 50% of the serotonin is produced in your gut, and over 90% of the serotonin stored in your body is stored in the gut. So when you have an imbalance in the gut, you're just not getting the chemicals to the brain that you need in order to feel good. So we are chemical processing plants, and when the chemicals get out of whack, you got trouble. So... Getting into a science that concerns itself only with truth is fascinating and I love it and I want to know what the truth is, but I'm not going to steer by the truth because if I believe, oh, you could never do that, that doesn't help me. So far better to believe anything is possible so that you'll at least try and you'll push yourself. So the people that are happiest, brace yourself for this one, the people that are happiest in clinical trials The people who are happiest are the ones that score highest on self-delusion. So since the game that you're playing is not success, since the game that you're playing is not money, despite what people may tell you, the game you're playing is neurochemistry. How do I feel? That's it. If I give you $7.4 billion, but you hate your life and want to commit suicide, what good is the money? Conversely, if you have no money, but you love your life, you have a deep sense of fulfillment and what you're doing every day puts you in a state of bliss and joy. What does it matter that you don't have money? Like At that point, like what more is the money going to bring you? The game that you're playing is neurochemistry. So if you find more contentment, more happiness in delusion, then better to feed the delusion. Now, look, I get it. Like anything, a little bit of delusion is probably good and too much delusion is paranoid schizophrenia and you end up in a mental institute. So, I'm not saying it can go unchecked. I'm just saying that it, even delusion is a useful tool. Hmm. So if you let's, if I were empirically ugly, it does not do me a service to believe that it just doesn't, then I'm going to be way less confident. And the thing that people respond to even more than looks is confidence. So I'm do that, which moves you towards your goals, period. I love it. Thank you so much,
0: Tom, for being on. I generally, when we finish off these interviews, we like to leave the audience that are listening here or watching here today with one small challenge, an action step they can do. It could be super small or it could be a little bit bigger. But for the people that are listening, they can turn off, pause the interview, and just take action on that, whether they're walking around or at the gym or at their home. What is that one challenge that the listeners can do
1: to live a more impactful life? All right, it's going to be a two-parter, which might be cheeky, but I'm going to do it. Uh, Number one, you need an insanely specific goal. Insanely specific. And I'll give you examples of not specific goals. I want to help people. Not specific. I want to get rich. Not specific. I want to build a business. Not specific. You need to get very specific. Your goal needs to be like absurd in its specificity. Then create a list. Title that list Important things and every day first thing once you finish your morning routine do not check email go into your important things list which should be in order of most important to least important but only important and work your way through that list if you live in that list and it's all things that are aimed at helping you actually achieve your goals if you spend your time in that list and your goal is specific if you do that with enough diligence you will be successful
0: Tom Bill, you everyone. Thank you so much for being you got here. It, man. Thanks for making it all the way to the end of the show. Hope you really enjoyed our guest today and that you took one thing valuable from our conversation. If you haven't already, I would love it if you could leave a quick rating or review on whichever network you're listening to the show and share this episode with one friend if you found it valuable and if it's something that a friend, a family member, or just someone that you care about could find a little bit of insight from what you learned today. All right. Chao.